0: The gardening is a kind of act of social transformation. Um, people, especially like whole cohorts of young people over the years, like lots and lots of classes of, of apprentices that this organization has graduated, they go there and they um, work the soil and they grow kale and squash and tomatoes and berries and all of these things. And what they learn is not just how to farm, they learn that maybe their hometown can be something other than a refinery town. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. I
1: don't know about you, but sometimes I'll just be doing my thing and suddenly I'll just start to get really depressed about climate change. Like, is it is it just me? I'll start to think about how we've done this to ourselves, how much suffering we've caused. And then I'll start to think about how there's nothing I can do personally. There is no number of electric cars or solar panels or vegetarian dinners that are going to solve this because it's just so huge. And then if I don't very quickly distract myself, I end up really, really depressed because the solutions aren't individual. They are community solutions. They are global solutions. And have you seen the world lately? because it doesn't really lend itself to global solutions. And that's why I'm here today with Madeline Ostrander. She's a journalist who writes about climate, energy, and environmental justice. And she has a book called At Home on an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth. The book tackles these very feelings of despair with stories of community. Madeline, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so
0: much for having me here.
1: And I wanted to start by asking, do you ever get super depressed by climate change? Like, is it just me?
0: Oh, yeah, totally. It's It gets really overwhelming sometimes, especially when the news cycle turns to, you know, a sequence of disasters that's happening in multiple places all at once. And I was wondering,
1: you know, we when we're talking about kind of depression over climate change, this actually has a phrase. And one of the things that you actually come back to over and over again is kind of this feeling of loss, this feeling that is sometimes called eco-anxiety, sometimes it's called climate grief. Um, and one of the things I found really fascinating is how you linked this in the book to the concept of home and what home is and what home means to people. And I was wondering, why did you do that? Why home? What is it about home that resonates and gives a rise to these feelings of loss?
0: I think we live in a culture, and I'm sort of talking about sort of dominant American culture, I suppose, at the moment, but I think we live in a culture that underestimates our connection to the, the places that are around us. Um, there's a whole field of psychology called eco-psychology that's trying to address that gap. But um, you know, if you were to go in to your ther- therapist's office and say that um, I think now, you know, I think now climate growth is being taken more seriously. But I think in the past, if you were to go into your therapist's office, as I have tried on a couple of occasions and talk about my eco-anxiety, like it's it's not really always met with a sense of understanding. Um, I think our connection to home and community and, and place is part of who we are. And um, I think that the the anxiety that we feel and the grief that we feel when we start to lose that connection or when it starts to become threatened or afraid is is pretty big, actually. And um I think it's a defining emotion of our time in some ways. And so I wanted to draw attention to that in the book. Um, home is part of our identity also. So I think when we when we are experiencing the impacts of climate change around us, it shifts how we think about ourselves as well, I think.
1: I actually wanted to kind of pursue that because you mentioned that you know this is a kind of I guess you could call it American you could call it western concept yeah um that we are not so linked to our sense of place um and I was wondering do you think that affects whether we feel climate grief or eco anxiety in the same way do you think some people feel it more intensely than other people um, is this a universal sort of feeling when climate change happens to you?
0: <laughs> it's a good question. There are some statistics that pretty large percentages of young people are feeling climate anxiety. So some of it is about where you are in the world and, um, you know, where you are in your life and your awareness of the situation. Um then there's also the issue that you know sometimes farmers are are denialists about climate change. Although when when you interview farmers up close, you can find that they are aware of changes that are happening in the world, and that um, climate change has also become such a polit- politicized term in some places that I think the word itself is alienating. Even though the they can notice the impacts and maybe are experiencing climate grief, even if they wouldn't name it that way.
1: So it's interesting because. You mentioned, you know, they could be feeling climate grief, even though they don't really think of it that way. Um, And another word that you use in the book that I thought was really appropriate in a way that I didn't realize it would be um, is the word homesick and homesickness. Um, And I was wondering if you could kind of put that in the context of climate. What does homesickness mean in terms of climate grief?
0: Yeah, so there's this Australian philosopher Glenn Albrecht who coined this term soul nostalgia, and it's derived from the word nostalgia, which originally referred to homesickness. And when homesickness was first talked about um centuries ago by it was actually talked about by medical professionals who thought of it as an as an ailment, like that you would actually get sick if you were separated from your home. Um, I think it was due to like Swiss mercenaries. It was that
1: they would have these Swiss mercenaries Mm -hmm. that would go places and they would actually Mm -hmm. get very sick. And I mean, what they were actually sick with, who knows, but they were indeed also homesick.
0: Right, right. Medicine of centuries ago is not exactly. (laughs) It's very different from today. But at the same time, I think... You know, we sometimes we underestimate the role of stress on health. And so uh, there are, you know, there is more contemporary evidence about what happens to people when they get displaced and how stressful that is and how it can affect the body. So what's happening with climate change is that instead of I mean, there are certainly um, many people around the world who are being displaced because because of climate change. But even those of us who are not being displaced. If we're experiencing the impacts of climate change around us, that the places we call home, the places that where we derive our sense of safety and our identity and places that are familiar to us are starting to change and become less recognizable. We're getting summers full of wildfire smoke or summers full of epic heat waves that we've never experienced before. And that's stressful. And it may cause us to feel a kind of homesickness for the home that we used to have, even though we haven't left. It's like, the planet has changed around us, but we're still here.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about that because I feel like as I get older, I, I do that. I go, oh, wow. You know, I remember when I was here and there was snow in the winter and there has not been snow <laughs> in mm-hmm. the winter where I live for a while. <laughs> um, and there used to be and it wasn't just snow. There was a lot of snow, actually. <laughs> um, and 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 kind of that you get this kind of jarring disjointed feeling or when you have a heat wave and it's 90 degrees in october it it's a a very jarring feeling that goes beyond simply being uncomfortably warm in october <laughs> and kind of it, it's a it's very unsettling i think and i'd never before thought of it as homesickness also i just love um this is like a side note but you talk in the book about how this philosopher kind of is trying to get solastalgia to get kind of catch on. And it's so funny. It's like trying to make fetch happen. He's, he's trying to make this word happen so hard. and I don't know if it's ever going to (laughs) work. I feel like he needs to have like an essay somewhere very fancy so that very like elite people start using the word soul nostalgia to like make it happen.
0: I mean, I think to be fair, it has been taken up in certain fields. Like there are medical, you know, health studies uh sociological studies looking at solastalgia so some scholars have taken it up and there's also interestingly been a number of artists that have taken it up there's a sculptor based out of oregon who's done this some beautiful sculpture the ceramic sculpture about solastalgia um and there's been other folks uh, there's a you know there's been music albums named after solastalgia obscure ones but but still um so it's out there but it doesn't it it may n- or may not ever become something that you talk about at Thanksgiving dinner or something. Uh, that seems maybe a little less likely to me, but I don't know. Uh, weirder words have become common parlance, so could happen, and, I suppose.
1: Yes, and I I just love that it's one of the trials of science that we never mm-hmm. really think about is like the trial of like coining a new term for a new thing that people are experiencing and then trying to get everyone to use it. <laughs> It seems like new words catch on all the time on social media, but man, you just try to make soul nostalgia happen, you know, and you're just working for years.
0: That's also probably true.
1: He needs a TikTok dance or something. Um, (laughs) I'd like to see that. (laughs) I I would pay money. Now, so one of the things I liked about this book is um, I love how upfront you say there are no individual solutions to these collective problems there aren't. Um, And this is a real challenge to journalists, because we spend a lot of time reporting what individual people are doing, right? (laughs) You know, whether it's like an individual fireman rescuing a kitten from an individual tree, (laughs) or, you know, this one guy, you know, spending millions of dollars doing this one individual thing. And so I was wondering how, when you went to write this book, how did you go about trying to capture senses of community responses as opposed to a series of individuals? Because you do really capture kind of senses of communities, whether they are small scientific communities, um, there's an indigenous community in Alaska, you're really working with whole communities, not just with individual people.
0: I was working with communities, but I tried to find the people and they sort of emerged through the process of interviewing the people who had taken some kind of leadership role. And I don't necessarily mean a city councillor, although there are city councillors that pop up in the book, but, you know, the pe- the person who's, uh, well, in the case of the Valley in Washington State, which is one of the communities, the person who is a firefighter, who's running a daycare center, who's also starting a small business who decides to run a whole recovery effort after a wildfire. And she gathers all of these other people together to be part of that. Now, she did end up becoming the mayor of that town for a little while. But the reason I found her was not because she was a mayor, but because she was at the center of all of these things. And I think in every community, you find these people that emerge um, who bring people together. They're good at gathering People. And so I looked for those folks and I told their stories. And I tried to make sure that I wasn't just, it wasn't just some sort of hagiography or something. You know, I wasn't just making them into the saints who were saving their town or the world. They were the people who were leading an effort. And there are lots of other voices. And I tried to bring in those voices as well.
1: I feel like that's the thing that I've found through my reporting is when you go into a community to report. You're always going to end up hearing over and over, "Oh, yeah, you need to talk to so-and so. Oh, have you talked to this person? Have you talked to so-and so?" And once you hear that, like more than three times, you know that's the person. Mm-hmm. yeah, they they are they are the central nexus of whatever your story is. <laughs> um, so for this book, you ended up spending time in four very specific stories. Um, so you were dealing with a community dealing with forest fires in Washington State. Um, a community in California dealing with an air polluting um, oil refinery and uh, two very different communities dealing with sea level rise in very different ways. One of them was dealing with both sea level rise and ground collapse in Alaska. um, And the other is dealing with sea level rise in Florida. And I was wondering, how did you go about selecting
0: these particular examples? So um, some of it was in a sense opportunistic, in the sense that um, I'm a freelance journalist and I have to go where somebody allows me to go, you know. So um, <laughs> I found I found stories um, and I pitched them to my editors and then they sent me to report on some of them. Um, I also, it, originally when I envisioned this book, um, probably because I am a magazine journalist, I I thought I was going to tell all these different stories. I was going to throw in the kitchen sink and like you know all sorts of places. I was going to do international reporting. I was going to do this whole thing. And um, my literary agents actually talked me into doing something a little more focused. <laughs> um, I think they felt, and I agreed with them as we talked about it, that it would make more sense to focus in on a few places and really allow those places to places to speak and allow the people in them to have a presence and allow the readers to get to know those places. So I chose four places that I had, you know, spent enough time with that I felt I could really represent them well, and also four places that um, represented different aspects of the climate crisis. So in the first part of the book, the headlines are um, fire, flood, thaw, and explosion, and so I wanted to represent different faces of the impacts of the climate crisis. And each of those communities represents a different piece of that. And yet they have some parallel journeys.
1: And I wanted to start with your example of fire in Washington state. Um, And you know that we are getting bigger and hotter fires now, um, in part because of climate change, but also in part because of many, many years of fire suppression. And you talked with some ecologists who live there and study fire. And I was actually wondering, do we know how often areas like that burned um, before colonizers arrived? Do we
0: have an idea? Like, did they just burn every year or was it like every few years? It depends on how you define it. And um, it also depends on which particular spot and which particular ecosystem. Um, But when you look at something like fire return interval you're talking about which is the technical term you're talking about when does a fire come through this one particular spot so a fire just happened in this one stand of forest this year how many years from now is it going to come back to this spot it doesn't mean that like in that general area let's say it's a park or let's say it's the national forest or it's you know wherever it happens to be it doesn't mean that in that general area there might not be another fire but in that specific spot that just burned, when will the fire come back? I think in the areas that I was doing research, it was something around the order of 15 years. Um, but it's going to vary depending on where you're talking about. That's really interesting because
1: like 15 years is, is both a very short time, but it's also a long time. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking about that because, you know, one of the problems is that now there are very permanent settlements and infrastructure Mm. in those areas. And Mm -hmm. they're much more permanent settlements than indigenous people there had, you know, before colonizers arrived, probably because those people knew full well the area needed to burn. So, (laughs) you know, build portable. Um, And I was wondering how do fire managers think about dealing with that? Because of course you do have to do controlled burns, To try and, you know, limit the kind of dead ground cover, which when you suppress a fire for, you know, 20 years, 50 years, that's how you get those huge conflagrations um, is leaving all that tinder on the ground. How do you balance the need for burning with the fact that we have this permanent infrastructure?
0: I mean, I do think it's complicated. Um, One thing to know about the fires of the past, or sorry, the forests of the past, the landscapes of the past, not just forests, but like, you know, any fire-adapted ecosystem, is that they would have been patchy. So, like, there was an area that burned five years ago, and another that burned 20 years ago, and another that burned last year, and they're all next to each other, and they're these little spots. And so when a fire comes through, it doesn't, it wouldn't have done what they're doing now, which is to flame up in this, I mean... I don't wanna overstate. There Certainly there were big fires historically, great big ones, but in general, a lot of the fires would, more of the fires would have been little things that burned up in a little area. And then that kind of petered out because there just wasn't like as much tinder and fuel around them. Um, now what we have is a situation where many of the forests across many thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres, are in one state where they've, you know, the fire has been suppressed for a long time, and so there's a lot of tinder everywhere. And so when that fire comes through and burns, it, you know, burns across a large area. It also burns, um, you know, much more intensely than it would have in the past. Part of that is because of climate change, and part of that is because of this accumulation of fuel. Um, so, I mean, it is a big deal to try to figure out how to how to restore the forest landscape. It'll require a lot of effort across the West, um, I think some of it may be a cultural change in terms of, like, how do you do this around places where people have settled? Um, I interviewed folks at the Washington Department of Natural Resources, for instance, and they have a program where they'll come and help landowners do their own little prescribed burns. But very few people use it just because it seems daunting, I think. It's technically more difficult and... Um, I think probably it's partly just a sort of cultural thing. It it seems like a bigger lift, but it is there. Um, And I think there are communities in central Washington and and, um, I've seen some communities in Montana where someone who has the know-how about prescribed fire starts talking to a lot of their neighbors about prescribed fire and then it becomes more of a thing, more of a conversation, more people get interested in it, which comes again, I guess, back to the theme of the book, which is that solutions happen in communities. You know, one person is there to to try something or to push for something. And then if they can get more of their community members involved, it becomes a much bigger thing.
1: Yeah, I I wanted to kind of pursue a little bit about the idea of community. So um, the town that you kind of focus on in Washington State burned a couple times. Um, They knew it it was going to burn again. And the community worked very, very hard to recover from these fires. And this involved the community kind of pulling together and giving within itself over and over and over again. And like, on the one hand, that's beautiful. On the other hand, eventually, you're going to all give out, right? There's not (laughs) there's not a lot that you know you're gonna you're gonna literally run out you will not have any more used clothes to donate Um, I mean it's more than that of course um and and uh you also talked about kind of one way to plan for this which is kind of a long-term recovery group and I was wondering if you could talk about what that was and how those groups work
0: a long-term recovery group is sort of a almost like a method or like a a planning process that uh, disaster recovery experts have set up that a lot of communities use to manage the process of recovering from a disaster. And it's called the long-term recovery group because it takes years to recover from a disaster. It's not like a couple months have gone by and you're all fine. Especially when people's houses burn down. I mean, if you can imagine, like, I, I can't even personally really imagine what it would be like to lose my entire house, but I'm sure that I might spend, I could imagine spending much of the rest of my life trying to figure out how to make sense of that. So it's it's a big deal. Um, and so the long-term recovery effort is is a way to deal with all of those things that have to happen, including people sending out used clothes. And as you mentioned, and um, making donations and sending money. And how do we raise funds to help people rebuild? And how do we help people deal with their feelings? Because there's a lot of grief after losing your house to a fire. Um, It's just a way of creating a kind of infrastructure to help people get reorganized. Um, The community that I write about in the book that's that did one of the biggest efforts like this is Pateros. It's It started there because a significant percentage of that town burned down in the Carlton Complex fire, which is now actually nine years ago in 2014. That was a, a huge moment for Washington state where when we were really starting to see a lot of these megafires that are now becoming almost commonplace. So Pateros had to go through this recovery effort. And then the next year, there was another huge fire in another part of the same county. And because Pateros had learned a lot about how to recover, the folks in that community who had been involved in that reached out to help this other community that had burned. And then a few years later, another couple of communities burned. And again, because they built up this kind of expertise, they said, like, we can help you figure out how to do this. And now some of the folks who who were in that, group, especially Carly Anders, who is this mayor that I've mentioned. I mean, she travels around the country and brings people together to talk about how do we prepare, how do we get ready, and like how do we recover when a disaster hits us? I actually wanted to pursue that
1: a little bit because you note in the book that fire preparedness in the time of climate change involves both preparedness and pragmatism. And I really like that phrase. And I was wondering, what does that mean? What does preparedness and pragmatism look like?
0: I think so preparedness. I mean, there's this whole set of protocols that groups like um, fire ready communities have come up with where, you know, you don't put like wood shingles and stuff on the top of your house and like have like lots of trees leaning into it so that when a fire comes, everything just catches and you don't have spaces for like embers to land on your house and Catch fire. Um, there's all sorts of interesting studies. There's actually a guy who's retired now, but who had a whole lab set up in Canada where he would experiment with burning down houses and like see how fire spread. It's it's a wild experiment. Um, and so there's like a lot known about how fire spreads in residential settings and a lot that can actually be done to prevent that. But the trouble is you're getting people to do it and making it possible making it possible basically for people to renovate their houses, which is not, uh, you know, an easy thing necessarily for an individual. Again, why these solutions aren't necessarily individual. Um, So that's part of the preparedness part is just having things set up so that when a fire comes through, you're not as vulnerable. And then the pragmatism part, I think part of it is just recognizing that Fire is real and it's going to come and we have to talk about it. And that's also been a challenge in some of these communities because that's not necessarily a fun conversation that everyone wants to have. I think it's a much it's a conversation that has a lot more traction now across the West because people have lived through it and people have seen it. And so they're much more concerned and they want to talk about it. Even so. I, I think it's it's hard sometimes to get people to have a conversation about fire and smoke and how do we get ready for it. and um especially when there's real estate involved when people have their dream home that they want to build and maybe they don't want to think about that part of it. it, it's a challenge.
1: It actually um reminds me, and we'll talk about this a little little bit more, I think, but um about the, you know, kind of the difficulty of dealing with loss and preparing people to deal with loss, trying to get people to do disaster preparedness is a lot like trying to get people to write a will or, you know, deal with potential long-term disability or illness or death. Nobody wants to talk about it because it's a really good analogy. Actually, it's just too depressing, Mm -hmm. right? You don't want to think about your worst nightmare coming true But the reality is that with climate change, we need to Mm -hmm. think about that. Um, So I wanted to talk about your second scenario. Speaking of home renovation, because we were talking about home renovation, um, you talk about flooding in St. Augustine in Florida, um, which is a city with with a huge amount of history, which means there are a lot of historic buildings there that you can't move. Mm -hmm. because They're buildings (laughs) and they're big. Um, And I was wondering, what are some of the ways that people are trying to preserve historic buildings and artifacts in the face of things like sea level rise. Are we just going to let historic things end up
0: underwater? I mean, I think unfortunately the answer is yes, Um, but not, I don't mean that like in a, I, I don't, um, I'm not saying that in sort of a lackadaisical way or whatever. Like it, it's it's not that I think um, Saint Augustine certainly is not just letting its stuff go underwater, but at the same time, there's a certain inevitability about some places. I mean, you can't haul a stone cathedral that's next to the coast into a new place. That's just not feasible. So there are going to be things that flood, um, and I, there's a few different ways of of looking at that. So one thing that Pretty much most communities that are doing anything about sea level rise are are trying to do which is just buy time. so if you can make small take small steps like find the most flood prone parts of town and put in some kind of barrier or put in some kind of green engineering like a marsh that'll take in some of the water or um one of the simplest things they did in St Augustine is change the valves in some of the um storm drains so that when there's a hurricane or flood, the water doesn't come up through the storm drains and flood into the street that way. So those little kinds of steps can basically buy a community some more years and how many years depends on sort of what we do globally and how quickly the water rises, but it it can buy people time to adapt and to document what's there and to make decisions and to plan and then another strategy is to let the water in so some historic structures you know a big stone cathedral i mean i don't have a specific one in mind but but i could imagine a big stone cathedral where the stone is i mean you know stone can probably tolerate a little bit of water coming in on occasion if you if you were to make The building, floodproof in other ways, if you um, there's been some buildings like the U.S. Naval Academy where they in which is in Annapolis, Maryland, where they've um, moved all the electrical stuff up so that if a flood comes in, it doesn't hit the electrical stuff. Um, There are houses that I saw in St. Augustine where people just um, changed up the whole first floor so that it was basically relatively waterproof. Um, You know, it had tile and they didn't live in the first floor. And so if a flood came the water could just come in. Um, and there's lots of proposals like that in various places about building canals or about um, creating spaces where water can go. And then another possibility that those places look at is to actually move some buildings that could be moved, not the cathedral at least, but like a house maybe. Um, and of course, the fourth one is to raise things up so a lot of the houses in St. Augustine near the waterfront have been lifted up on piers. So there's room for the water to go. And all of those, you know, happen bit by bit, but they also do have to happen in some sort of coordinated way. Otherwise, you have this kind of piecemeal situation where parts of the community flood and other parts don't. and usually the parts that flood, the the worst impacts are going to fall on the most vulnerable people because they have the least ability to adapt. So it's kind of a complicated puzzle in most places that are trying to figure out these questions. This actually reminds me of um, some
1: time that I spent in Venice in Italy, where it floods so often that, you know, talking about simple solutions, they literally just have kind of boards and like little raised metal things and they just put out new sidewalks that are two feet above the regular sidewalk and so that you can walk because it's flooded um and it's it's, it was kind of dark but i (laughs) i remember being like oh okay we're just gonna put out our rain sidewalks now which are made for the fact that it's raining at high tide in venice
0: Venice is an oh. interesting example though, too, because in addition to those, they've also built these massively expensive floodgates that have been really controversial and that basically cut the city off from the rest of the water when there's a flood. But like, how do you decide when to raise them? And like, what does that do to commerce and how expensive they've been? I mean, these these have all been really controversial issues for Venice. So it's it's messy, both trying to deal with You know, all of these little solutions sometimes seem very piecemeal, but then a big solution can sometimes turn into a big engineering boondoggle. Um, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that the Venice gates are all boondoggle, but but there are people who view them that way.
1: And getting back to Florida, I found the part of the book on Florida especially fascinating, because, of course, if you live in the United States, you know how much Florida is getting educational systems um, as well as infrastructure. And it's really interesting to think about the fact that Florida is kind of gutting its own knowledge of history, while also potentially physically losing its history to sea level rise. And I was wondering, how do you think this impacts how the people who live there are able to prepare and deal with the rising waters? Because rising waters don't care what kind of funding you
0: have or how you've been educated. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I do in the book um, try to reflect on on history. I think that even though climate change is a future problem, if we become a historical, we lose all the knowledge of people who have dealt with different kinds of crises in the past. And of course, a lot of our knowledge of what's going to happen with sea level rise comes from uh, both. I mean, we can look at what societies in the past have done, but we can also look at the geology of sea level rise. Um, Florida's for a long time been kind of a a weird place in this way in that, you know, they've had state leadership that has not been willing to acknowledge climate change as a threat. And yet at the county and regional level and local level, there's been people who have said, well, actually, we have to talk about sea level rise. So we're going to make our own agreements and our own steps And I think to some degree, that's still the situation. Um, Any conversation about climate change is going to be complicated at the state level. But local communities have to take steps um, because they're on the front lines of of this. And so the
1: third example in your book is uh, Newtuck, Alaska, Uh, where people are among the first climate refugees. They need to move the whole town because it is literally falling into the sea. Um, And it's taken more than a decade to do it. And the town still hasn't moved. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why not. And it's not that they don't want to move. I mean, they don't want to move, but they know they have to move. (laughs) So why, why has this been such an incredibly fraught and really long process?
0: So I should say that about half the community has moved at this point, and it may be more than that. I'm sure that they've moved some people this summer, and I haven't had a chance to check in with them lately about what the current status of it is. Um, They have been trying to move the whole community for a couple of decades now, and it's been complicated for a number of reasons, and a lot of them are bureaucratic. So... um, There were things like in Alaska where you couldn't get funding to have a school until you have students, but nobody's going to move to a place with no school until it exists. And so, (laughs) there's been this kind of weird chicken and egg situation with Newtok, where they needed the infrastructure to be there for it to be a habitable place, but it was hard to prove that they needed funding for the infrastructure until people lived there. And the state really had to, and and the federal government has had to examine their policies and rethink them for cases like this, for cases where communities are having to relocate because of climate change. I think the Biden administration is now actually, you know, actively trying to figure this stuff out. There was an announcement um, several months ago where the Biden administration was releasing a ton of funding to tribal communities for resilience planning, including to Newtok to go to their relocation. So I think there's a good chance that in the next couple of years, they will get everyone over, which is also just in the nick of time because they got hit by a huge tropical storm last fall and it knocked out a massive amount of land from in front of the school and they're in a, just a very dire, frightening situation. Um, but it's taken a long time, I guess, because of the way that we have thought about communities and planning land. We just haven't been able to understand and imagine what climate change looked like. But the idea that this slow moving disaster would come for a community and that would destabilize the whole place. We just never set ourselves up in terms of you know, the way state and local and federal government to be able to deal with that.
1: One of the things that I actually really liked about this particular section of the book um, is how it brings – it kind of made me think really hard about how secure I feel in the building where I live, right? You come into the building and you're like, I am secure, I am safe, this building isn't moving. This building is not going to move. It is not going to be wet when I didn't want it to be wet. It is, you know, I am going to be secure in this place. And, you know, you're you're showing the people who live there and they've lived in these houses for generations. And there are, you know, a lot of times these houses are, are really crowded. And the houses themselves are fundamentally unsecure. Um, you cannot guarantee... <laughs> that in the next storm that house is going to come out all right and that I, i you you don't really actually address it and i don't think you ever ask in the book any of the residents directly but you do kind of convey this feeling of insecurity the feeling that this whole town is really clinging on by its toenails um and never feels safe To the people who live in it, even though the community itself is a very safe feeling community, the place where the community is, is not safe. And that was really
0: that was really very striking to me. A big part of the experience, the emotional experience of climate change is a dissolution of our sense of safety. I think that the world just feels much less stable, but I would also say that Newtalk is an Alaska Native community that has a, a history of a cultural history of knowing how to relocate, um, a cultural history of being uh, semi nomadic. So people moved with the land, people moved with seasons Bef- before colonization. People moved, and one of the things that's been important to Nootak's journey. know through this relocation has been been to think about their ancestors and about how they negotiated moving and to think of it as a way to reconnect with that heritage And I think that's been important. I think it's been, in a way, almost like a a source of pride. And, And it's complicated, of course, by, again, by colonization, by what we've asked them to do. Like, American society has asked them to have a stationary school, have stationary buildings where they could do business with the outside world. And all of those things are now a requirement of living in this country. And so they can't really go back. But all of those things are much more cumbersome. And so to be able to create a village that can both... Accommodate the cultural traditions, keep them close to the land and water, and be able to continue to do hunting and subsistence and you know gathering food on the landscape, and then also keep them able to engage with the rest of the world. That's been a really complicated process, especially in that particular region because the the, the the climate, the the weather there is really extreme already, and then when you add in climate change, it's even crazier,
1: that was actually one of the things that i I also appreciated is it really showed how for this group of um and you know, native Alaskans, this colonization means they are stuck in a settled lifestyle and they are suffering the consequences of that lifestyle style. They asked for neither of those things, yeah. um, and it's it so it was really. It was a very dramatic example to me.
0: It is a really um, compelling um, kind of. I mean, I think it's a, it's an example that I think should cause people to think about questions about fairness, and it's it's an it's a very intense example of climate justice because these are people that we. I mean, really. Um, American culture tried to extinguish indigenous cultures across the country. Tried to force them to unlearn their languages, to take on, um, you know, mainstream American values, and to stop practicing their traditional um, cultural practices. And New Talk has hung on. I mean, New Talk still still speaks Yupik as a first language. People are still very engaged with their cultural traditions, and so they're. Their survival as a community is also a matter of cultural survival and their ability to do that is, is I think, part of the, you know, our support of their ability to do that, I think, is a debt that we owe to that community. And so even though it's been very expensive to try to figure out how to help them relocate, I think that's a cost that we have to bear because they didn't, they have had very little to do both with the causes of climate change and they've had to bear the brunt of, of all of this Colonialism, and I think we owe things to communities like that, and we need to have real conversations about that as well.
1: And on that train of thought, your final example is Richmond, California, um, where an oil refinery has been exploding, catching on fire, and releasing horrible chemicals <laughs> into the air now for generations. And this is a an impoverished community; it is majority minority, um, and this was an interesting example because it's not necessarily a symptom of climate change so much as a direct cause. And I was wondering why did you end up choosing this particular community and example?
0: I wanted at least one community that was a frontline fossil fuel community. And I also had a relationship with Richmond as a journalist going back a decade. I started doing interviews in Richmond many years ago when I was putting together an issue on resilience for Yes Magazine, where I used to be an editor. And I found that community to be exceptionally creative and bold and imaginative in the way that they talked about climate change and the way that they talked about fossil fuels and in the way that they talked about what they imagined for their community. It just seemed really impressive and also a really interesting place in microcosm to examine what it means to both be very dependent on fossil fuels and how challenging it is to get ourselves off of fossil fuels because it's all right there. There's this huge refinery staring you in the face. Almost anywhere you go around the city, you can see it in the distance. And it has a huge impact on the lives of everyone who lives there. But it is also the majority employer
1: of that area.
0: It is the majority employer, although interestingly, only a small percentage of people living in Richmond work at the refinery, or I should say the other way around, only a small percentage of the people working at the refinery actually live in Richmond. Um, The bigger impact on Richmond is tax revenue. The city derives something close to a quarter of its tax revenues for its general fund from Chevron. So, and Chevron also provides a lot of philanthropy, which um, I don't, know if anyone has come up with figures for that, but I think the combination would be a significant hit to the community if it just evaporated tomorrow.
1: Um, yeah, that was actually one of the things that I really appreciated that you talked about in the book in terms of the nuance of it, right? Like Chevron is owns this oil refinery, and they are causing major direct environmental harm to the people who live in that area. They're also you know richmond still cannot afford to lose the business and the business as part of kind of its own pr does a lot of kind of work in that area as well and so it becomes this very difficult kind of embedded system um and so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what residents there are doing about that because you mostly cover an, an urban gardening Um, initiative, which has expanded and it grows. And the way you describe it, it sounds really beautiful and very delicious Um, (laughs) and helps people in the area kind of forge their connection with nature. But at the same time, that doesn't directly do anything about the oil refinery. And it's still negatively affected by the oil refinery because the soil is so contaminated. You can't even grow vegetables. In it, they have to ameliorate all of their soil just to use it. Um, So, why did you decide to kind of focus on this particular venture? And what do you think it kind of adds to your kind of overall story of communities as sources of resilience?
0: Yeah. So, it's interesting because when I started writing about it, there, and even now, I mean, over the years, there have been many stories about like, hooray, urban gardens in. You know, neighborhoods that are food deserts or something. And um, while that's cool, and that's also a part of the story of Richmond, I felt like that wasn't really the main purpose of the farms that are, that have been um, created there by this organization. In a funny way, I think that the gardening is a kind of act of social transformation. Um, People, especially like whole cohorts of young people over the years, like lots and lots of classes of of apprentices that this organization has graduated. They go there and they um, work the soil and they grow kale and squash and tomatoes and berries and all of these things. And what they learn is not just how to farm, they learn that maybe their hometown can be something other than a refinery town. And some of those folks have gone on to get involved in local politics, and they've gone on to get involved in lots of other organizations around the community that are activist organizations. Meanwhile, Urban Tilt, the organization that I'm talking about, has gone from thinking of itself primarily as a community gardening organization to being an organization that is trying to talk about what does it mean to have a healthy city and some of that is what people eat but if you go beyond that it's about what they believe what they breathe and what kind of jobs they have there and what kind of future they have and the the further you get down that road of asking that question the more you see that perhaps fossil fuels are not actually part of a healthy city and so then can the city organize itself to have a conversation about what it might mean for the refinery to go away and what it might mean to create other kinds of industry and other kinds of economies there. And that's the conversation that's happening now in Richmond and, and all of this gardening and community building led the city of Richmond to that conversation. And it's gotten even bigger actually, since I, I wrote the book. So there's a much bolder conversation really happening about the refinery um, and about whether the community wants it there anymore. Which is not to say the community has the power necessarily to force it to close tomorrow or something. But I think that you know, I, I think I think some interesting things could happen politically and economically if the community decides that it would rather not be a fossil fuel community and and that's the evolving conversation there now.
1: It's also really, I think people might be surprised um to note that this takes place in Richmond, California, which mm-hmm. seems, very liberal and progressive on climate." Um, Can you talk a little bit about why Richmond is still stuck with this oil refinery?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. One of the folks that I interviewed for the book, um, the soil scientist, had moved to Richmond recently when there was this fire that broke out in 2012. And he was a student at the University of California, Berkeley, and he said, "I was just floored to realize there was this refinery there. I thought I was in this green state, you know, that was all eco, and, <laughs> and there's this this industrial site catching fire." Surprise! Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, to the surprise of many people, who I think. somehow tend to forget this, California is quite the oil-producing state. It's one of the most significant oil-producing states in the country. And oil and gas, both. Um, And Los Angeles, many people don't realize that Los Angeles is actually an oil field. Like, there's active oil wells in Los Angeles. The city has now got a plan to, to shut those down. There's a moratorium on oil drilling going forward in Los Angeles, which is still you know, going through sort of legal fights and stuff, but but the city is actually working to shut those down. There is on the order of 17 refineries across California, um, and they refine oil from a variety of places. Um, and uh, the Chevron refinery in um, in Richmond is 120 years old. It is one of the largest refineries and therefore one of the largest greenhouse gas producers on the West Coast. Um, it's huge and old and it predates the city and it kind of dominates the city, really. When you drive into it, you you see it there, this enormous structure of pipes and smokestacks. And um, it, anyone who's lived there, it kind of looms large in their consciousness, I think.
1: Um, So I wanted to come back a little bit to one of the things that you note in the book is that we might actually need to accept losses due to climate. And, you know, as we talked about a little bit earlier, people don't want to face the possibility of their nightmare coming true. Um, and, And I was wondering, do you see, have you seen people in your reporting start to prepare for accepting losses? Or start to just kind of accept those losses and just like cut your losses, <laughs> as it were. Um, are you seeing evidence of that? And what does that look like?
0: I think in the book, I tended to focus on people who had gone through losses, so they weren't just preparing themselves for losses; they had actually had losses. Um, I think, um there's a few different ways to look at this. Um, One thing that I I sometimes note in um, talks that I give is that I I think a lot of the most interesting solutions to climate change are coming from frontline communities, which means communities that are experiencing some of the earliest impacts of climate change and or are right in front of these fossil fuel industries that we need to transition in some way. those communities, a lot of those communities have already dealt with a lot of kinds of loss and a lot of kinds of impacts. Um, Richmond, California in particular, has gone through huge amounts of economic loss. They watched the collapse of a lot of their industry and commerce um, in the mid 20th century. They've dealt with a lot of discrimination and environmental racism, a lot of housing discrimination, which is you know, why some people get stuck living next to pollution and others do not. Um, So I think folks in Richmond have already dealt with a lot of loss and a lot of trauma. Uh, There was a crack cocaine epidemic that went through Richmond, and one of the people whose stories I follow through the book, Doria Robinson, lost a bunch of her childhood friends through the violence to do with the crack cocaine epidemic. So people in some of these communities have already been through a lot of loss and a lot of trauma and a lot of disaster. And I think you could... I mean, certainly the, there's tragedy in those stories, but I think there's also a lot of lessons about resilience and what it means to pick yourself up after loss. Um, I would say the same thing is true of Indigenous communities. I mean, and anytime I've I've many times heard um folks from Indigenous communities say that um people who well, white people have have not, you know, talk about Um, climate change and the experience of it is if it's so unprecedented, but indigenous communities have already had to deal with the loss of their world. And so I um, I think in these stories, there are examples of how you find that kind of strength and how you pick yourself up and start imagining new things are possible. In a lot of ways, that's why I picked these stories, because they're places where people have already experienced really difficult things. And they've been able to pick themselves up and say, I can imagine something better here. I can imagine something new. I could imagine finding resilience. I could imagine building a community on the other side of the river, in the case of talk that is stable and also is incredibly energy efficient. And perhaps we could bring wind and solar here and we could change the way that we use water so that it's more sustainable. So the the village that they're building in Newtok on the other side of the river is actually really beautiful. And it's very sustainable. And they've thought about a lot of those things about how you design sustainably in northern communities. So um, I think there's different ways to deal with loss, but one of them is to, you know, use loss as a moment to find a meaning and to find a path forward. And I think that's a lot of what I've tried to do in the book.
1: So this book is very um, focused on kind of the fact that these are not individual solutions. These are collective solutions, whether they're collective solutions for a small community or for a very large one. Um, And so one of the things that you talked about in the book that I'm so happy you talked about is the tragedy of the commons. And most likely many listeners who are listening know what the tragedy of the commons is, or they think they know what the tragedy of the commons is. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of talk about what the tragedy of the commons actually is and how did it end up applied to climate change?
0: So the tragedy of the commons is an idea that came from an essay that was written in the 1960s by a scholar named Garrett Hardin. And he drew out this example based on no empirical evidence um, that uh, farmers, sheep herders in, in sharing a pasture would inevitably overgraze their sheep because Someone would always try to bring out more sheep than they really should, and so the pasture would always eventually kind of fall to ruin because people would overgraze. And he wrote up this example, and he wrote it up as as if it was supposed to be a metaphor for all of human society. We will always, forever, overuse our resources if we're trying to share them, and the only solutions he could come up to this. Um, with for this quandary is that uh, everything should either be privatized so everyone should have their own little pasture instead of a shared pasture or um, there should be some sort of draconian horrible top-down government that tells everyone what to do and that will overcome our our human nature to ruin things when we share things and he put this out and lots of people took it on faith it's still cited very commonly i was just recently at a conference where people were talking about property rights and someone piped up and said what about the tragedy of the commons and nobody challenged them which i thought was stunning um, but it's it's really wrong um there's another scholar who you know was started working around the same time who later on um about 10 years ago or so, won the Nobel Prize in economics. She's no longer alive, unfortunately, but her name is Eleanor Ostrom. And she studied, shared, like actually gathered empirical evidence on shared resources, including groundwater aquifers and irrigation and also pastures all over the world. And what she found was that, in fact, there are lots of self-sustaining systems where people share things effectively. And they're often more effective than privatizing things because people come up with rules. They come up with whole systems for managing these resources together. They come up with ways of enforcing them. They come up with ways of talking about them together. And those systems are really effective. And by studying them, she was able to come up with a sort of Overarching understanding of how the systems work. And she later in life wrote about climate change and about how it would be possible to have these shared systems for managing our atmosphere and that they could start at the local level. And they could all, you know, they also needed to happen at all levels, but there's no reason why we can't also have them in our communities. And I cited that both to help people understand that we're not all doomed. So um, we're not all doomed to horribly misuse things and treat our resources badly, but also her point about how some of these solutions can happen in, in the community and they can be layered and overlapping. So they're happening at lots of levels seemed really important to me because I think people people forget that what's possible at the local level and how important and meaningful that is and how it can translate into larger scale actions as well. And that's part of what the book is about as well. Also, I just love that like a
1: dude could write an entire highly cited, incredibly influential idea about how the commons were tragically overgrazed without ever finding out whether tra- ca- like commons were actually tragically overgrazed. Commons were real things <laughs> that existed presumably there were records as to whether or not they were overgrazed anyway
0: (laughs) it is extraordinary he was also a well-known white supremacist through his life um and wrote a bunch of um well racist um articles for you know various organizations and still he was just a bad idea kind of guy he was a bad idea sort of guy (laughs) and yet still you know he wasn't you know his authority on the subject wasn't really questioned for many years later so which isn't unfortunately surprising in our history of academic ideas
1: so in our last um, few minutes, I did want to spend a little bit of time talking about the structure of this book, um, because I found it really fascinating. It's got four main stories that we talked about. Um, it's got the oil refinery in Richmond, California. It's got New Talk, Alaska. It's got St. Augustine, Florida, and um, Washington. <laughs> Fire <laughs> in Washington. Um, I've had coffee today, I swear. Um but I, I noticed that in you, know, you weave in these four stories together, but there are also these interesting interludes that we've talked about a little bit where you contemplate words and concepts that are related to climate change. Concepts like the tragedy of the commons, words like nostalgia, um, the idea of what home is. And I was wondering why you decided to structure it this way. Why do you have these kind of shorter contemplative essays that are there throughout the larger stories?
0: Part of it probably goes back to this thing that I said earlier that I I wanted to throw all of these stories into the book um, and make it this huge thing of all these different places. And um, when I decided to scale back, there were some ideas that I still wanted to represent in the book, and I I needed to create a structure where I could um, where I could do that and not overwhelm readers with like too many other tales. And so. Um, partly it was that, partly what I say in the introduction to the book, and and I, I meant it, is that I think it's nice to have these little quiet spaces in the book where you can stop back, take a breath, and think about something, because in a lot of the book I'm carrying people through disasters, you know, I'm actually walking them through experience of a wildfire, and that's pretty heavy. And so if we can walk through that and then pause and think, where are we right now? What does it mean? What are we feeling? Kind of like a safe space, like a therapeutic space <laughs> um, to to allow the readers to, to, and myself to take a breath and think about those things. Um, I felt like that was valuable. I also think um, people are really struggling with a lot of personal feelings about climate change. People are struggling with hopelessness. People are struggling to make sense of where we are. People are struggling to figure out how to participate in what's happening with climate and not feel hopeless or powerless. And I wanted to give some space on the page for feelings and just some space on the page for wrestling with where we are and who we are, because I think we all need that as well. We don't we need stories to help us. Um, understand what it is that we need to do. But I think we also need places and spaces to be able to reflect on those feelings.
1: Well, Madeline, thank you so much uh, for speaking with me, writing this book and keeping climate hope alive by emphasizing community action and giving us all a little room to contemplate and breathe. Thanks so much for talking with me. If you'd like to learn more about Madeline Ostrander and her book, At Home on an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth, you can do that at our site, scienceforthepeople.ca. If you are new to the show, welcome. And if you're one of our old friends, how are you? I hope you're doing well. We'd love a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference. And we've even got a Patreon page where you can support our independent podcasting crew with a monthly donation. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. On Science for the People.
0: Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Bethany Brookshire and Rochelle Saunders, and is edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Carolyn Wilkie, and me, Rochelle Saunders.